Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to this 21st edition of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill and it's nice to welcome you again to another episode. Thanks for listening again if you are returning. Just to say we've now reached the point where William is beginning to make preparations for his work on the railway in 1840s Milan. So in this episode, he has to journey to um, Genoa. Anyway, the engines are being imported into this bit of Italy through Genoa, I suppose, by sea. So he's making a journey from Milan through Pavia to Genoa to inspect the engines as they're imported into Italy. So that's the point we've sort of reached. Just to say the usual things I always say at the beginning of this podcast Google a grand tour with my great great granddad and it will be available on all the podcast platforms available Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, anywhere you want to listen to your podcast. Uh, YouTube, do subscribe because that helps to raise the profile of the podcast. Also, if you want to um, engage with me on Twitter or other social media, the Twitter account is um, Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G, that's the number 3, at 3G Grand Tour. There's a Mastodon account, which is uh, at scotted at universadon.com. We're now at the moment where we have an alternative to Twitter. I've got a feeling of deja vu about this, because I think Mastodon was meant to be the alternative to Twitter just a few months ago. And now we've got this other one called Threads, obviously, which is... Mr. Zuckerberg's version of it. And of course, to do threads, you have to have an Instagram account, which I didn't have. So I have set up an Instagram account, but I won't as yet say anything about it because I really don't know what I'm doing on Instagram, <laughs> to be honest. I barely know what I'm doing on Twitter. So uh, I've got to get my head around the whole um, Instagram thing, which apart from it repeatedly refusing me to uh, open an account with it for some reason until I did it on my phone... <laughs> don't know why didn't like the cut of my eye jib as they say for some reason it kept rejecting me but anyway i've now signed up on my phone on instagram so no doubt that'll then mean i can do things on threads i mean let's be honest the whole social media thing pretty tiresome i've got to be honest with you it's not a part of this whole podcasting thing i particularly enjoy really i do enjoy the engagement when people (laughs) do contact me he said backtracking rapidly no it's not the actual conversations and things but it's the the whole rigmarole of going through setting things up and everything and getting your head around a a particular social media type of platform you know and here we are again seems like at square one with this new one with threads but yeah it is really good to get any feedback from people so if you want to do that probably at the moment twitter is still the easiest way uh, there is a Facebook page as well, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. So that's another way you can also make contact. But um, Twitter probably the easiest way. And I just thought I'd mention that in my last episode I did, and on my Twitter page I did sort of promote the episode through mentioning Mr. Pablo Fank and his connection to the Beatles and, <laughs> and stuff like this. Uh, thinking, oh, what an unusual and interesting connection to lead from... Um, the 19th century circus owner and promoter and equestrian artiste of Pablo Fank to the Beatles and the song Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. But it turns out everyone I've mentioned this name to goes, oh yes, isn't that some connection with the Beatles? <laughs> so there was me thinking, Ooh. yes, the uh, interesting connection between, I don't know if you know this, but the interesting connection between Pablo Fank and the Beatles is, and they go, 
Oh yes, Pablo Frank, the poster, and for being yeah, I know John Lennon bought it in an antique shop, didn't he? And you know, and then you go, uh, yeah, yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, if you don't know about it, do listen to episode twenty, and then you will learn a bit more. There we are, but that's it. We can't know everything, can we? Obviously, I've been ignorant all these years of Mr. Pablo Frank and uh, his connection with the Beatles, but I still think he's an interesting character to know more about him himself. To put it literally, he's not just a one-trick pony. <laughs> he had his own very interesting career in the 19th century as a black performer and circus promoter, which must have been quite unusual, I think, in Victorian England. Right, so that's that bit. Anyway, I should now get on to what's coming up in this episode, really. Now, I'll be quite blunt, not a huge amount happens in this episode. William's on his journey through Milan from Pavia to the coast, and really there's... There's sort of two interesting things he talks about. One is the Villa Simonetta, which is just outside of Milan. And the next one is this very impressive monastery called the Satosa di Pavia, which is a very grand and magnificent building in this part of northern Italy. And he spends quite a lot of time talking about that. So I've kind of ended up talking about it rather a lot myself. Not quite in the same way as he has done, but just to explain some of the things he mentions. But really, this episode is rather sort of dominated by those two things. And after this, his journey will continue because once he's inspected the steam locomotives, I think the first one that's been imported, he takes back to the railway line in Milan, which goes from Milan to Monza. And uh, I didn't realise this because uh, I have to admit, I'm rereading these journals again. So sometimes I've sort of forgotten the exact account and chronology of how things happen. But when uh, William gets his first engine back to Italy, it's still actually not that much of the track has been built. I thought it had already been built, but they're still completing the track, so there's not a huge amount of track for him to do these initial trials as he discusses on them. And also, doing a bit of forward reading, I might go into this into a bit more detail, but I did realise, I won't say actually now what it was, but I had wondered how William had got the job as this engine driver, and I think I now know what the connection between him working at the Mint previously to this in London and then getting this railway job as a, an engineer and train driver. I think I can see now what the connection was and how that came about. I will explain that more when we're talking about the actual railway engines, but I had said quite often, how does he end up getting this job? But he doesn't seem to have much experience of being a railway engineer or a steam railway person, but I now pretty certain i think i know how that came about so you can look out for that in the forthcoming episode or maybe the one after that <laughs> so william begins his journey from milan he's been at the lazaretto which was that uh, plague hotel that we finished hotel <laughs> plague hostel <laughs> yes come to the plague hotel <laughs> you check in but you don't check out um <laughs> uh, no the plague hospital not hotel Plague Hospital of the Lazaretto. So he's just moving on there and then he visits the magazine, which is obviously like where all the gunpowder is held for the military of Milan, I suppose, or Lombardy, Venetia. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Opposite the Lazzaretto is the powder magazine, a building constructed for the purpose and with a great deal of care, the powder being kept in copper barrels and in small cells, separated from each other by double walls and the interstice filled with sand. Interstice just means intervening space. At a short distance further is the military veterinary hospital. This building was formerly the convent and church of Santa Francesca. This is only one of many instances of the conversion of churches and convents to far different uses to what they were originally intended for. In connection with this establishment also is a veterinary college for the purpose of preparing veterinary surgeons for the army. The lecture room of this establishment contains many anatomical preparations and drawings and a very respectable library. The Simonetta, formerly one of the country palaces of the old Dukes of Milan, and also of Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, is situated about a mile from the city and offers an example 
now becoming very rare of the taste of former ages in their country houses, and it has never been spoilt by any attempts to modernise it. It is consequently very interesting. It is much frequented on account of a wonderful echo in one part of the building, the repetitions of which frequently amount to a dozen, and the sounds are also remarkably clear, the reverberations becoming more distant towards their close, like memory, which recalls most vividly the events of years gone by. They also show the visitor a trap-door leading into a dark vault, and relate awful stories of the cruelty of Emperor Frederick, one of which is that any of the higher classes that was unfortunate enough to offend him was invited to an entertainment at the Simonetta, and after being upbraided, so that scolded, with their faults, was thrown through the trap into the vault below, and if not killed by the fall, was left there to perish. The Ambrosian Library is a large establishment situated at a short distance from the cathedral, and which no one who enters the city of Milan ought to omit visiting. It was opened to the public in 1609 by Cardinal Frederick Borromeo. He, being a great lover of knowledge, caused the books to be purchased by learned men whom he sent throughout Europe, and even through Asia. At the opening of the library, it contained about 35,000 printed books and 15,000 manuscripts in all languages. It now contains 60,000 printed books and about 25,000 manuscripts. It was called the Ambrosian Library in honour of St Ambrose, patron saint of Milan. Its learned founder wished to connect with it a college of learned men who should take charge of the different departments of the library and making known its treasures, particularly to foreigners who wished for information. The want of funds reduced this college from 16 members to two, who yet bear the title Doctors Beble Ambrose, with a gold medal having singularly singular inscribed on it. Well, that's Latin for each and every one, so I think they were Doctors of the Library, each and every one, or roughly what would be on these medals. Amongst the gems of literature which this celebrated library contains is the Book of Virgil, once in the possession of Petrarch, in which is the account of his first meeting with Laura, written by his own hand. This precious volume also contains another note written on the death of his illegitimate son Giovanni, and illustrated by miniatures painted by Simon Memmi of Siena. Nine or ten letters from Lucretia Borgia to the Cardinal Bembo, with which is placed a lock of her golden hair that she sent to him. There is also a voluminous manuscript of Leonardo da Vinci filled with sketches, proving that not only as a painter, but as an engineer, he had arrived at great excellence. This book contains various drawings of hydraulic, astronomical and optical instruments, as well as notes written in Leonardo's own hand. The librarian also stated that King James I offered for this manuscript a thousand Spanish pistoles. There are also several volumes of painted flowers, well executed, and a collection of miniatures to illustrate a manuscript copy of the Iliad. These last two are of great antiquity, and have considerable merit. I know of no place where a few hours may be spent more agreeable than here, containing as it does so many rare and interesting objects, and especially as the attendants, particularly to foreigners, are always ready to point out what best merits attention and always allow you to remain, examining any book or manuscript for any period of time you wish. At a little distance from the library is a gallery of works of art, containing, besides casts in plaster, several pictures of eminent masters, particularly a cartoon of Raphael's School of Athens, and the studies of Leonardo da Vinci, as well as the early copies of this great painter's Last Supper. There are also some beautiful pictures by Bernardino Luini, he lived from 1480 to 1532. And in the courtyard is a representation of a palm tree made entirely of copper, which has been mistaken by numberless persons for a real one, myself amongst the number until informed to the contrary. The great traveller Lalonde describes it in one of his works as a real tree, and with great seriousness cites its verdure in winter as proof of the mildness of the climate of Milan totally forgetting in the first instance that a palm tree is an evergreen, and also that they will grow in a cold climate, for I myself have seen thousands of them on the American continent at an elevation of 9,000 feet above the level of the sea, and where the climate was equally as cold as it is in England in the winter. So it's possible that William is referring to a chap called Jerome Lalonde, who was around from 1732 to 1807, and he was an astronomer and writer who wrote about some of his travels. 
And as for the mildness of the climate of Milan, I have seen snow laying on the ground fifteen inches deep for weeks together, and the frost and cold so intense that the thermometer has stood ten and twelve degrees below zero. This is proof of the veracity of those men who fly across the country for the purpose of making a book. Slightly hypocritical point there, I think, from William, because that's basically what he's doing. But anyway, I suppose he's not envisaging his book's going to be published by anybody to make money. So I'm going to stop at this point to discuss a bit further some of these buildings that William has mentioned and clarify one or two things as well. Now, he refers to this Villa Simonetta as being owned by the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. And I'm sure he's got this wrong. I imagine that William is being taken round these various sites by Italian guides. And sometimes he may be not quite understanding what they're saying to him. Maybe someone's there trying to translate for him into English what they're saying. I don't know. But I think this is where these confusions happen because Frederick Barbarossa was a Holy Roman Emperor from a much earlier period than when this villa was built. So it can't be him. And I think who he means is someone called Ferrante Gonzaga, who was a Italian nobleman of that period who was quite well known. He owned the villa after the original builder of it. And he was in various military campaigns and things and made quite a name for himself so i think that's who it means and or you know he, he's misunderstood and uh whoever told him it was frederick barbarossa unless they would just got it wrong themselves i don't know i suppose you can only go by what he was being told at the time and um this story that he tells about uh men being condemned to the cellar and the pit below and being killed by frederick barbarossa who had been displeased by something they might have done. That's not true either. But there is definitely some story along those lines, because basically this villa, after it was built, it had several owners, but it eventually ends up in the hands of the Simonetta family. And they had a daughter called Clelia Simonetta, which uh, Clelia apparently is Italian for Sophie. But anyway, Sophie Simonetta. That's well, quite rather nice, the alliteration, doesn't it? Anyway, Clelia Simonetta, she is quite notorious for her exploits that she got up to at this villa. I should just say that it's still there, and it's now a music academy. But in its history, it has this um, tale about Clelia Simonetta, whose ghost apparently is still meant to haunt the building. But she apparently, she was quite a young daughter of this noble Italian family and she had what can only really be described as um, orgies really <laughs> that went on there. And these orgies at times rather got out of hand and, and these happened in the basement and the, the cellars of the building. Apparently young men were invited, were then bathed in a Turkish bath before joining in with the fun and games that went on in the uh, Simonetta Villa. And sometimes things got a little bit out of hand and basically they copped it <laughs> somehow. Some suggest that clearly Simonetta strangled them in her lustful endeavours. I don't know. There's also this weird thing that she then conducted experiments on the bodies and she was in some sort of quest to rather like Frankenstein, to create some sort of human monster built out of body parts. Anyway, she's <laughs> notorious basically for having orgies. The figure that's quoted is that 11 men just disappeared and were never seen again after they'd um, copped it, um, copping off. <laughs> but she certainly, you know, she's been described as a sort of uh, human praying mantis, you know, she would make love to her lovers and then consume them anyway they, they, this is the rumor that has been passed down the generation so i can only think that that's maybe what william was alluding to when he's told this tale that people went down in this pit or in this cellar and uh, didn't come back again so and obviously there's some confusion in his mind or the story that he's been told by whoever it was who was telling it at the time 
because it's probably much more likely that it was actually this fairly well-known story of Clelia or Sophie Simonetta. This thing about the um, echo is very interesting because it was famous, apparently, at a certain point on one of the balconies, one of the lower floor balconies. It was reported that you could say something and it had this tremendous echo, this reverberation that would go on and on and on. And most famously, they sort of say you could say the word love. Love, 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 love. and it would be repeated up to 30 times. Actually, I suppose that should be Italian, shouldn't it? Which is... Uh, amare, 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 etc. Anyway, it was very famous for this echo, which obviously William mentions, but unfortunately the villa was damaged a bit in, I think it was in the Second World War, and when they had to restore it again, for whatever reason, this echo phenomenon that it had seemed to just disappear so it no longer happens if you go there the echo doesn't exist anymore there must have been some sort of slight alteration to the architecture that when they were storing it meant that it disappeared and then the final thing i was just going to mention is that more of an adjunct to it really but but it's palestinianator because there's quite a lot to say about it but it was also the location of a, a kind of prank that was done by a group of sort of young men. They were called the Company of Tupé or Tupper. Basically, I think, as I've mentioned before, Austrian rule was not very popular, really, amongst the Milanese population. But a lot of Austrians were in Milan at the time and enjoyed sort of high society, and there were a lot of Austrian officers around and nobility and so forth. And this group, the Company of Tepper or Tupper or Tupé, <laughs> It was basically a group of semi-aristocratic or aristocratic young men who wanted to make a point of their unhappiness with Austrian rule and did this by doing practical jokes and tricks on various members of high Austrian society who were sort of ruling in Milan at the time or Milanese nobility who were happily taking part in the Austrian nobility's rule and prominent social gatherings and, uh, you know, balls and things like this, and who had bought into the Austrian rule and were happy to go along with it. And so this company of young men did these various tricks. Uh, one of them was quite notorious as a very good forger. He was called um, Giuseppe Ravani, and he used to cause these practical tricks by writing letters and then duping people into various things two sort of famous ones one was he wrote a letter that was supposedly from the archbishop of milan archbishop geyserich who we spoke about in a previous episode where he basically writes this letter and he invites all these clergy along to this big sort of banquet that he's going to have and Basically, what he did was then he, he then wrote a letter instructing guys that he had to pay for this huge banquet to be laid on and all the food to be provided for all these noble archbishops and clergymen who were going to attend. And, of course, what happened was the invitations were never actually sent out. So he, he duped Archbishop Geisach into paying all this money for a huge banquet that never happened. Uh, he also did one where he wrote some a letter that went out to all the Milanese high society people who'd been invited by the Austrian Archduke to attend some ball. This was Archduke Joseph, who we mentioned earlier, who's in, actually at the time, William's there. He was in charge at the time of Milan. And um, basically in this letter, he instructed the people who were all invited to instruct their coachmen once they'd arrived at the event to send their coaches home because somehow transport was going to be provided by the Archduke Rainier. Joseph Rayner, as he was known, or that he was going to put them up for the night. And, of course, uh, that wasn't the case. And, of course, all these nobility after the party and the banquet finished all went out to the streets to find that their coaches weren't there, which they'd expected, but there wasn't any alternative way of getting home. So they all had to walk home and get soaked in a rather wet storm that was happening at the time. Again, it was this thing of this group were trying to make a joke out of Milanese high society that was willing to play along with the rule of the Austrians but the one that's kind of quite bizarre and linked to this Villa Simonetta it was actually the last one that this group of young I think there was about 30 of them 
they were they also did very minor things like pushing soldiers into the river and stuff like this but the one that's linked to the villa Simonetta is this one where um basically they create the impression that there's going to be this very fancy ball with all these high austrian society men soldiers officers and so forth who are going to attend this ball and of course they make it known to all the young noble women of milan that this event is going to happen and of course they all think oh well this is a good event for me to attend you know like debutantes i suppose you know i might find myself a very posh respectful austrian husband and so that will be a good thing to attend but what they actually what they actually did was that they um, went around the streets of milan and they gathered every sort of tramp down and out and also shall we say dwarf little person a person of reduced height to attend and then they locked them in this room in the Villa Simonetta and they they said to to them they promised them that actually (laughs) oh lads there's a whole load of prostitutes all going to come and we've laid it all on for you and when they come you can have your way with them so the down and outs low lifes and raggedy dwarfs of Milan (laughs) were in this room expecting a whole load of prostitutes to turn up and the poor young ladies of uh, Milanese high society all went along to this banquet expecting these great nobility of uh, young gentlemen to be there and who they might be able to foster some sort of relationship with and find a new posh husband. And because when they got there, they opened the doors and the tramps and the dwarves started ravishing the young ladies and the young ladies understandably rejected their unwanted advances but it got quite feisty and um, things got thrown, people got bashed. Someone called the police and um, anyway, it was sort of sorted out by the police and um, basically after that event, they quite easily tracked down who these guys, the company of Tupé or Tepper had been and a lot of them were then arrested. But of course, because they were themselves members of Milanese high society and quite respectable, they didn't really get that bad a punishment some of them basically had to take a commission in the Austrian army as officers. Others got banished to um, uh, Vienna, I don't know. But anyway, they really got off quite lightly considering what had happened. But um, they managed to avoid serious prosecution and jail time. So anyway, that's the whole thing around the Villa Simonetta. Rather lengthy, that. I'll just also try and quickly say a few things about this Ambrosia library that William mentions because he's pretty well right in saying that it was Cardinal Borromeo's idea to set up this place of learning. So as William says, he sent people out around Europe and the world to gather notable manuscripts, artworks, and bring them all back and house them at this uh, Biblica Ambrosia is what it's known as now. But some of the things that William mentions there... Uh, you know, the cartoon by Raphael, the books with Leonardo's engineering drawings in it, they are there still. It was actually visited by Byron and the letters of Lucretia Borgia that William mentions. Byron apparently was a great admirer of those and I think he described them as the prettiest love letters in the world. And weirdly, he supposedly managed to steal a, a lock of her hair that was also in display at the time or claimed he had done. Whether he'd actually done, I don't know. And, of course, Mary Shelley visits there about 1840, same time as William's there. She apparently visited there as well. Apparently, when she went, there was a lot of security there because apparently someone had tried to steal one of the objects. So she was a bit disappointed because she couldn't get to look at all the things she wanted to because of this incident that had happened earlier. Also, just to explain when William makes this reference to Petrach and Laura, Petrach, I mean, he was a kind of philosopher, writer, hugely influential even to this day, a lot of his writings were said to be the birth of the Renaissance in Europe. So he was a generally sort of liberal thinking, certainly wanted to spread the word of knowledge amongst people who became very influential. But he had this muse in his life who was this woman called Laura. No one's quite sure exactly who he was. There's been speculation that she was the wife of a certain no woman who he knew. I should say he dates back to much earlier than William's time. Again, it's sort of 1500s, I think. So when William makes reference to this book in which Petrarch mentions Laura, that's what he's referring to. As I say, Petrarch is a very influential philosopher, thinker across Europe, but this um, 
obsession really he had with this woman Laura because he never had any real contact with her other than he once saw her across a crowded room as they say and then constantly sort of then wrote poetry about uh, to her she was very much his muse but some think she was almost like a mythical figure so if you google Petrarch pretty well Laura will come up in the description of him and his history but many of the things that William's seeing at that Biblica Ambrosia are still on display there to this day. May 1st. Having received instructions to proceed to Genoa for the purpose of superintending the transport of the machinery to Milan, I started on this morning for Pavia, the route to which is extremely pleasant passing by the side of the clear and wide canal, bordered by trees that afforded a pleasant shade from the too fervid rays of the sun, which at this season is becoming rather troublesome, passed through two villages of Binasco and Baraguado, both pleasantly situated on the banks of the canal. About fifteen miles from Milan is the Certosa, Certosa di Pavia, a magnificent church and convent formerly belonging to the Carthusians, and was supported by the Emperor Joseph II, who confiscated its enormous revenue. This splendid edifice is situated in a noble park, resembling that of an English country seat, with umbrageous, so that's shady, trees, feathering to the grassy mound beneath them. Ornaments of every kind have been lavished upon it, and it presents one of the most striking and imposing pictures imaginable, surrounded by the deep verdure and its fine trees, the soothing silence of the scene only broken by the chirping of innumerable birds. The Certosa owes its erection to John Gallius Visconti, Galeazzo Visconti, 1351-1402, Duke of Milan, and was most likely meant as an atonement, if not a bribe, to win pardon for his sins, which, if not of a deep died, so that expression deep died means perfect or absolute, so I'll just introduce that in the sentence instead, which, if not perfect in a political point of view, must ever be considered so in a moral one. He who is accused of imprisoning his uncle in order to seize his territory, and of administering poison to the son of that uncle, after having treacherously got him into his power, could not have had a very quiet conscience, and must consequently have been anxious of making a peace offering to the deity he had so fearfully offended. It is reported, however, that Galazio Visconti, like many other successful sinners, was more intent on enjoying the fruits of his iniquity than of offering any atonement for it, and that it was to gratify his wife Catherine, the daughter of the uncle whose dominions he had usurped, that he undertook to erect this stately pile. And I will undertake to say that there is not the slightest doubt that there was a priest at the bottom of it, and that that priest was Catherine's confessor. Catherine, too, like Mary II of England, could fill, without shuddering, the throne of her parent, and be the wife of him who had deposed her father, and dwell in the palaces rife with the recollections of the days of her childhood, when the parent was not only loving, but beloved, and he languishing in a prison whilst she was enjoying his state. Surely the possession of a throne must have some powerful spell, thus to silence the cries of nature in the heart. The foundation of Certosa took place in 1396, Galazzo Visconti himself laying the first stone, attended by a grand cortege of all the clergy of the neighbouring towns. In 1399 he endowed the convent with a liberal provision payable from his own fortune for the maintenance of 24 monks and a prior, which provision he secured to them in his will, executed in 1402, only a few days previous to his death, which took place on his 47th year. He also added a codicil that a certain sum should be yearly expended for the completion of the Certosa, and that when finished, this fund should be annually distributed among the poor. It is said that the most celebrated sculptors in Italy were employed during three centuries in ornamenting the façade of the church, so that generation after generation disappeared ere the stately pile that now delights the eye of the traveller was finished. But if the exterior is calculated to charm and cause the spectator to stand wrapped in wonder, the interior of the edifice is still more beautiful, for the rarest marbles, alabasters, mosaics, sculpture, carvings in ivory, busts in gold, silver, bronze and pietro dura inlaid with precious gems, paintings and gildings are lavishly distributed 
all over it. The church is in the form of a Latin cross with nave and side aisles. The transepts are finished by two grand altars and 14 chapels. Seven at each side occupy the remaining part of the church. In the centre of the cross rises a cupola dome, divided into eight compartments, each of which is covered by frescoes representing the visions of St John, executed by Casalan of Siena. I think I must have done a bit of research into this, and it's actually more likely that they were by an artist called Ambrogio Borgognoni, or another one called Bernardo Zanali. They were artists around in the roughly 1460s to 1520s. The roof of the whole church is painted in the brightest ultramarine blue, studded with golden stars, which has the most brilliant effect, and the riches that everywhere meet the eye is positively dazzling. Vain would be the attempt to enumerate, itemise, the treasures of the Certosa, all its walls being literally encrusted with objects of art and beauty. To stand in the centre of this gorgeously decorated temple, not a portion of which is left uncovered by rare and precious works, glittering with the prismatic hues thrown on them from the richly stained windows, through which an Italian sun is casting his golden beams, and to hear no sounds save for the echo of your own footsteps, and the monotonous voice of the concierge as he slowly repeats his description. Why, a person might almost fancy himself in the palace of a dethroned monarch whose vast riches accumulated in this shrine had excited the envy of some wizard who had touched them with his wand of enchantment, causing them to remain for ages in solitude as a memento of the ostentation of him who had willed them to be placed here as trophies of his vain glory. The monument erected by John Gallias Visconti, the founder of the Certosa by the monks, proves that those sons of the church forgot the sins of the man in their gratitude for the benefactions he conferred on their order, thus offering a dangerous example that the guilt of the deep die, deep die again, so let's say the guilt of the perfect believer might be pardoned by the ministers of religion of former times, provided it was accompanied by a generosity to the church. This monument was raised more than a century after the death of the Duke Visconti, and is only a cenotaph, for when the remains were to be disinterred for the purpose of being placed in the sarcophagus within this splendid tomb, they could nowhere be found, all trace of the spot in which they had been buried being lost, a remarkable proof of the little interest the death of the wicked man had occasioned. This monument was designed by Gallius Pellegrini, but several artists were employed in its execution. Six basso reliefs representing the most remarkable of the praiseworthy actions of Visconti ornamented the mausoleum, and each has an inscription in Latin explanatory of the action represented. These bas-reliefs are the work of La Porta, and the trophies, arabesques and foliage, which are lavishly spread over the whole, are by Romano. So that's Giano, Cristoforo Romano. A statue of Visconti, the size of life, reposes on the tomb, and on each side is seated a statue of victory and fame by Bernardana de Novi. I don't think I had any luck looking him up. The deserted temple and vacant tomb strikes the spectator as offering a curious and remarkable lesson on the vanity of human intentions. The one raised by its wicked founder more in ostentation than piety, and meant to excite the wonder and admiration of succeeding generations, is now seldom opened except to be shown to visitors, and the other, erected by the monks to receive the bones of their unworthy benefactor, empty. The lavatorio, or washing-room of the monks, partakes of the general character of the church, being covered with bas-reliefs, and the roof is of ultramarine, interspersed with gold stars. Amongst the windows, a magnificent one of stained glass by Matthias represents St. Bernard with Satan, and is a fine specimen of work of the 14th century. The door of this room is of marble, and admirably sculpted by Amadeo. So that's Giovanni Antonio Amadeo. He supervised actually much of the artistic works and sculpture in the Sotosa, or on the Sotosa, and apparently he was there for three years working on it. The splendour of the decorations of the 14 chapels equals those of the rest of the building, and the eyes are absolutely fatigued with the multiplicity of the rare and precious objects that caught their glance. It is a relief to the visitor to find himself in the dwellings of the monks, 
the plainness and simplicity of which offer an agreeable contrast to the gorgeous temple he has just quitted. There are twenty-four in number, and they are behind the cloisters which answer for the purpose of porticoes to them. Each dwelling is separate, and consists of two small rooms in a little garden, in which there is a fountain and a marble bench. These gardens are now a complete wildness of flowers, many of them so closely interwoven as to conceal the earth, and in the tangled mazes of the flowers and shrubs, innumerable birds make their nests and rear their young in safety, and send forth glorious notes of joy. Each garden bore evidence that a love of nature had dwelt in the breasts of the inhabitants of these abodes, and who, deprived of other pleasures, had sought the pure and innocent one to be found in the cultivation of flowers, that, frail as they are, were to outlive the mortals who cherished them. The building designed for the reception of strangers and occupation of the prior is separated by a magnificent vestibule from the cloisters which form the porticoes of the dwellings of the monks. These porticoes are divided by columns, and their cornices and arches are ornamented by small statues, busts, foliage, and bas-reliefs in terracotta, finely modelled and executed. The court of the fountain is also richly decorated with the same, and has a very pretty effect. We spent several hours of the day here, one of those early summer days only to be seen or felt in Italy where the blue heaven above you produces an exhilaration of spirit that precludes all gloomy reflections, though it disposes the mind to calm contemplation. A gentle breeze fanned at the leaves of the stately trees around, and waved the long grass, springing up betwixt the stones of the pavement. The cow feeding in the park lowed as the hour for yielding their milk was approaching. The voices of the playful children of the custode, so that's the caretaker, mingled with the sounds as they frolicked gaily about. And there rose that stately façade, the glories of the setting sun throwing tints half golden, half crimson, over its sculptured wall as I threw upon it my last and lingering look, resting well assured that I might travel an immense distance ere I met with another building equal in magnificence and standing alone in all its glory, silent and deserted. Okay, so I'm going to stop here to talk a little bit about the Setosa de Pavia, because William obviously spends quite a lot of time um, describing it. I won't go into too much depth about it. It's a very impressive building. I think it's, they said it's the largest monastery in Italy. And uh, as William explains some of the history, it was built by this first Visconti Duke of Milan, Galeazzo Visconti. Now, William really seems to have a thing with him about being terribly devious and underhand and sinful in how he acquired power and stuff like this. And I would say he seems to take quite a dim view of him. I would say <laughs> that given the history of the Visconti and Schwarzer family in Italy around this time, they're all pretty devious and they're all pretty well as bad as each other, it seems to me. So making an example of one particular Visconti Duke <laughs> and uh, Tyrant seems almost <laughs> pointless in a way because they all all in some way seem to be pretty bad. And in, in fact, I think Galazio seems to some degree one of the better ones. William does refer to this thing about how he got power and it's all very complicated. You can imagine there's tremendous infighting amongst this noble family to acquire more land and more territory in this bit of northern Italy. But basically, he inherited part of this area of Pavia, Lombardy, from his father, and his uncle, Bernabo, was still in charge of the other half of it, if you like. I can't remember now. One was in charge of the eastern half and one was in charge of the western half. Anyway, Bernabo was a real tyrant as well, from all accounts. So he was not a very nice man, a very despotic ruler. Anyone who committed a crime, basically they got killed. <laughs> so they they were all pretty grim lot. And it's said that Bernabo actually was plotting to have his nephew Galeazzo killed so he could take over the rest of the territory. But actually the tables were rather turned on him. Apparently Galazio gave quite a good impression of being a fairly meek and religious man and uh, Bernardo thought it would be quite an easy task to get him killed basically because he wouldn't put up much of a fight. But actually 
this was really him being rather duplicitous and apparently he invited his uncle Bernabo to some sort of religious ceremony and actually what he did was uh, he actually kidnapped him when he got there and he imprisoned him with his two sons and it's actually then suggested that he probably had Bernabo poisoned while he was in jail. So basically this is how Galazio gets control of this whole area of northern Italy, Milan, Lombardy, etc. That's the duplicitous way in which he got power, which is what William's referring to, his sins and, and all that sort of stuff. But as I say, they're all pretty bad lot. <laughs> you know, whoever got there killing in first was likely to be the one who would be successful in uh, ruling over this area of Italy at the time. Ah! And in fact, then what happens is the Sotosa is this very grand building. Galazio also starts wanting to get Milan Cathedral built and improved. But he sort of has this dispute with the Milanese authorities and the stonemasons in Milan. And so anyway, for some reason, he decides that the Visconti family are going to have their own mausoleum, which is the Satosa, And the burial place of the Visconti family won't be in Milan Cathedral. It'll be in this grand mausoleum stroke monastery that he's going to build at Satosa. And... Actually, when William says it's an empty thing, they're not actually buried there. These are more buildings that are built in memory of those various dukes, noble men and women of the Visconti family. So basically, then it gets built as a mausoleum stroke monastery, and the Carthusian monks are the ones who are given possession of the building by Galazio to house them and to look after the building and to some degree they're also in charge of the works going ahead Galazio himself is involved in lots of battles and things like this again to acquire more land he ultimately his chemo was to try and rule over a big area of northern Italy bigger than just Lombardy Venetia but the whole part of northern Italy but he never managed to do that he gets involved in some big dispute with the French royalty as well and so all this squabbling and infoing <laughs> seems to go on. Meanwhile, this very grand building of the Satosa is being built, and it was built between 1396 and 1495, and the architect that was initially employed by Visconti was someone called Mario Solari, and then his sons carried on with the work. I mean, it's very, very grand and large, lots and lots of artworks in it it's extremely impressive i think by the looks of it i'd like to go there i think it, it strikes me that it's perhaps equally as impressive as milan cathedral i don't know i haven't been to either a lot of the marble i think was um, similar marble as that used in milan cathedral but because of its location which was deliberately chosen by glazio to be so halfway between pavia and milan it was a bit difficult to get the marble there and there weren't any nearby quarries that could provide good marble. So that was a bit of a difficulty in its building that the marble for it was not easily available locally. So it had to be transported along the River Po and various other things to be delivered there. So really this mausoleum that the Visconti family, starting with Galazio Visconti, wanted to build basically to um, recognise the glory of their family line. The interesting thing is when the Austrians take over in about 1796, they get the Carthusian monks thrown out and I think it's the Cistercian monks are brought in for a while. Then Napoleon comes along and the monks get thrown out again. And apparently from 1810 to 1843... It was actually closed. Now, that's quite interesting because when William's talking about it and he talks about the monks' gardens who are no longer there, basically he must have been shown around the Satosa when it was closed as a monastery. There's a cloistered area he's talking about, so each monk had their own little apartment in the grand cloister and that's where the gardens are that he refers to, where the birds are tweeting happily and flowers are growing beyond the years of their gardeners who were the monks. So it must have been at that time, obviously 1840s there, but not long after that, it then gets reacquired by the Carthusian monks and they move back in in 1843. So just a couple of years after Will's there, it gets opened up as a monastery again. 
but I, I suppose it was probably still always a kind of grand building. William talks about the caretaker and the children there, which is rather nice, actually rather nice picture that he paints of it. And, um, you know, I imagine people were still being shown around it as a grand building, I suppose, tourists, etc. And there is now a group of Cistercian monks who currently occupy it, so they've got back in again. Uh, I think it was acquired by the Italian government at some point. But post-war, I think in the 1960s, the Cistercian monks moved back in and currently they're the ones who are in the monastery. But that's it really. I mean, it's so much to say about it. There's a tremendous amount of artwork, sculpture, paintings, you name it, it's full of it. As you can tell from William's description, really, he goes into a great lot of detail about it all. It's one of those ones I suggest you look up yourself, Google it, whatever. It's very ornate, which is unusual because the Carthusians themselves were known for having a simplistic and isolated lifestyle from the world and, you know, meant to be simple living and so forth. But <laughs> then I suppose that is partly what William does talk about, this the kind of hypocrisy of any religious order. They're kind of willing to forget Galatio's sins of having his uncle murdered. <laughs> for a large sum of money and building them a very nice grand building. Probably not a bad point, let's be honest about it. So that's the Satosa di Pavia. Obviously makes a, an impression on William very much. He says that nice bit at the end about how he spends his time there with the Italian sun setting and the caretaker's children playing, the birds tweeting. It's all rather nice, isn't it? Sometimes William does write rather nicely about things. Right, so that's the end of this episode. It was rather dominated by the Simonetta and the Sotosa de Pavia. Sometimes it's difficult because there was rather a lot to say about Simonetta, which I hope you found interesting. I'm trying to keep this sign off short, really, he said, using up more time saying that, as I've mentioned before. If you want to engage through social media with the podcast, then Twitter is a good way. Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. And we'll soon be moving on to the next part of William's journey. It's been a bit of a gap this time between this episode and the previous one. Had quite a heavy work commitment, been away a bit to the Paris Air Show and things like that where a more modern form of transport than the steam railway is the particular focus. But that's it. The next episode we'll see William continuing his journey to Genoa, where he's not there very long but he does talk a little bit about it, I think mainly through reading some guidebooks, I suppose. He actually says, oh, I didn't get much time to spend doing sightseeing in Genoa. And then beyond that, he begins to talk about his work at the Steam Railway. So that is it. If you have been, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.